In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. In order that all sentient beings may attain Buddhahood from my heart, I take refuge in the three jewels. Whatever the virtues of the many fields of knowledge, all are steps on the path of omniscience. May these arise in the clear mirror of intellect, O Majushri. Please accomplish this. Hey, good evening and welcome. Welcome to Nagarjuna uh, in August. Kevin, nice to see you. Eric, Cynthia, Iswar, all right. Nice to see you, guys. So tonight we go through two of uh, Nagarjuna's main six texts on reasoning, as they're called. And the first one is wonderful text called The Jewel Garland, Ratna Avali, The Jewel Garland of Advice. And the uh, author of our book says this work differs from others. And that Nagarjuna is giving advice to a king on how to live and ex thereby extolling Mahayana Buddhist doctrines and practices. So I'm on page 34, 54, sorry. The audience for the other works is the community of Buddhist monks and nuns and Hindus who are more concerned with the philosophical aspects of the Dharma. Thus the style here, as well as most of its content, is significantly different from those other texts. This work consists of five chapters of a hundred verses each. Isn't that cool? Got it to fit perfectly in a hundred verses. Most of it is not relevant to the philosophical issues of the other works in this book. It's a little bit of an odd thing to say, but dodgy, dodgy subjects such as virtues and the practice of bodhisattvas. And so those portions have not been included here. This is not to say that those are not important in their own right, but only those passages that are relevant to issues in the other texts are presented here. And they show the philosophical. These verses, those other verses that are included here, show the philosophical verses uh, matters, rather, in a slightly different light because of the difference in the attended audience. For example, the text emphasizes getting beyond in is not existence and non-existence. Verses 78 to 100, uh, which is the last section of the first chapter, has not been found in Sanskrit, so it's only available in uh, Tibetan. So for those verses he summarized, he's created a summary based on these other translations by Dunn and McClintock, Hopkins, and Potter. So I circulated a couple of versions of uh, outline of this text. This is a wonderful text. And uh, um, the, the context, this idea that it's... Uh, oriented towards a king is a sort of interesting um, 
phenomena in that uh, while it includes a lot of things like uh, the various uh, different aspects of the Buddhist path, Shila, Samadhi, and Prajna, and the Paramitas, and so forth, it gives a, a presentation on understanding emptiness, understanding selflessness in a progressive and experiential way that is incredibly helpful and that does not exist in any of Nagarjuna's other texts. So it really is, in my humble opinion, it really is the most accessible and um, helpful of Nagarjuna's texts. All the other texts uh, in this group of six are sort of um, uh, difficult to grasp and sort of repeat the same difficult to grasp logic over and over again using different subjects. And it's sort of like, well, if you didn't get it the first time, I'll say it about 108 more times and maybe maybe something will happen. Uh, but it's, it's rather repetitive, whereas this presents um, much more gradual and way fuller explanation of the whole situation of the Bodhisattva path, um, both in general or completely with the Paramitas, as well as really wonderful sections on uh, understanding prajna. So I'm going to share the uh, outline of the text. There's two versions I've circulated. One is a summary. And let's see. And the other is a detail. So here, we'll, first we'll have the summary version. Higher Rebirth and Highest Good is the title of the first of the five chapters, starting the path to happiness and liberation, the adventures of an ethical like life and a fortunate life. Interesting distinction between an ethical life and a fortunate life. The path to liberation and full awakening and refuting inherent existence and establishing emptiness. And you'll see that... Uh, uh, most of the excerpts that this author has chosen are from uh, this first chapter. Uh, and then a little bit into the second chapter, an interwoven explanation of the causes and effects of higher rebirth and, and highest good. So chapter two is an explanation of the causes and effects of that which was discussed in chapter one. And then we have the collections for awakening, taking up the Bodhisattva, the balanced work of a bodhisattva, gathering merit and wisdom, and the fruits of merit and wisdom. And then royal policy, <laughs> instructions on the practices of a monarch. And this is uh, one of the earliest examples of such a text where we have a Buddhist teacher advising a, a monarch, a local monarch, king of, a, of the local region that that Buddhist teacher is, is uh, living and teaching in giving that leader uh, advice on the, in the Dharma. And, um, and uh, the, the, uh, the presentation to these kings is very advanced. And it, it's, it's a little bit hard to imagine king, a king being able to grapple with a text, text like this. Um, and more likely just sort of receiving this text and uh, having his advisors read it for him and tell him what's in there and him just sort of going, 
Well, thank you. Send him a thank you letter. Because <laughs> um, it's very complicated, very detailed text. But uh, this chapter in particular has very, very interesting practical advice on leadership and how to create a harmonious society and how to do helpful things. And it's, it's a little similar to Ashoka, King Ashoka who lives a couple of centuries earlier and is the first king to uh, do things like uh, improve roadways and provide resting areas for people traveling on the roadways, benches and, and uh, overhangs that uh, create shade, provide watering holes for travelers, um, and also uh, provide uh, care for, for animals, believe it or not. And uh, this, of course, is all after he mercilessly killed uh, huge numbers of people in various wars um, in order to become the, the emperor of India, as well as operating what was called the, the hell, uh, Ashoka's hell. And you can look that up on your own if you're interested, but it was a torture chamber that he operated. Anyway, practices of a bodhisattva. So other other kings, uh, we've seen reference in, uh, I think, Alan Wallace's, the course on Alan Wallace's uh, meditation teachings where he refers to an encounter between a monk named Nagasena, who also is related to snakes, Nagasena, interestingly enough, and the uh, Greek... Greco-Indian monarch named, uh, in that text, his, his name is Melinda. Scholars believe his more um, accurate rendering of his name was Meander. It was King Meander from the Greek Empire who was left there to rule India after Alexander the Great conquered northern India. Sometime around the turn of, uh, I don't know, the turn of the millennium, something like that. Um, and then it's, there's many other such examples of texts. It's sort of an interesting phenomenon of, of um, like a recognition that these teachers made an effort to connect to the, to the rulers, the leadership of where they were operating and uh, become friends with them. And uh, one of the latest such texts is a book by, or a text by Mipam, Mipam the Great, called, uh, translated recently, I think, under the title, A Just King. And as we know, Trungpa Rinpoche was uh, interested in these sort of things, and uh, from the point of view of combining in his embodiment, the monarch and the the teacher. Anyway, the last chapter, Practices of a Bodhisattva, Abandoning Afflictions, Cultivating Goodness, Excellent Qualities of the Ten Grounds, so he goes through the Ten Bodhisattva Ground, and then the Magnificent Qualities of a Buddha. So this uh, really is a, a, a really wonderful text. I highly recommend if you're going to get any books by Nagarjuna after this course and study them, I highly recommend this one. And there's a great translation by Jeffrey Hopkins. And then uh, recently there's a commentary that came out by a gentleman named Kenser Jampa Tekchok. And uh, I've been 
planning to like put together a little biography, uh, bibliography <laughs> of uh, the translations of the various texts we're going through in this course. And hopefully I'll do that and circulate that if you're, for those of you who may be interested. Then check this out. So uh, this is a detailed outline from that book I just showed which is a commentary on the text by Tibetan Kempo. It's called Practical Ethics and Profound Emptiness. I circulated this. So this is the uh, table of contents. Um, no, actually, this is from Jeffrey Hopkins' version. Sorry. In the back, he has this uh, guide to the topics, and it's 13 pages long, <laughs> an outline of the text. And uh, so I just want to show you uh, some of this outline. Yeah, this is from Jeffrey Hopkins' translation. Uh, so we have the f there's those five chapters similarly translated as we saw earlier and uh, setting the scene and this is done in the traditional way of doing Tibetan uh, sort of uh, Tibetan outlines of great detail he also gives the first numbers here and um, Uh, let's see, he goes through cause and effect of high status, so that's like uh, merit, meritorious realm, how to uh, live a better life in this life and, and in the next life, which is uh, called here um, high status, as opposed to definite goodness. High status is uh, temporal happiness in samsara, living a good samsara like all of us strive to do every day of our lives, basically. And then we have cause and effect of definite goodness, i.e. enlightenment. And um, here he describes what it is and goes into the uh, uh, analysis of emptiness or egolessness, proving the conceptions of I and mine to be false, refuting inherently existent bondage and liberation, applying the emptiness to the idea of samsara and nirvana. And um, then we have a uh, presentation of uh, emptiness, the extensive exposition refuting cause and effect, um, avoiding annihilation or uh, nihilism, freedom from extremes, refuting inherently existing phenomena in detail. And then uh, encouraging the king to train in the profound path, the two selflessnesses, selflessness of persons. And so this is great. You know, we, we learn this from Trungpa Rinpoche's teachings, profound treasury and so on, the two selflessnesses. And this is I, th I find it really neat to see this very similar, same presentation of the, the path of Dharma, of the Mahayana, 
presented by Nagarjuna in great detail and with great skill, selflessness of persons. Um, unsuitability of the six constituents as the person, presumably the senses and their objects and their domains, and then selflessness of other phenomena. So emptiness, emptiness of self and other, an inherently existent form aggregate. He goes through the five aggregates, refuting uh, dependent, inherently existent dependent arising and concluding with non-inherently existent depending arisings and um, refuting the inherent existence of the elements and then applying it to other phenomena and then applying the refutation to the remaining five aggregates. And then he goes into a very long uh, presentation of the path ex refuting extreme views um, inherent existence of self and selflessness, existence and non-existence, dispelling objections, the four extremes, and the difficulty of realizing this teaching. And then he comes back to the, the relative path of samsara, high status, and and the causes and effects of, of uh, enlightenment. Anyway, uh, wonderful text. So let's dive in and look back on page 54, actually start on page 55, the sense of I and the aggregates. So the most excellent doctrine is a subtle and deep scene of reality. The doctrine is said by the Buddhists to cause alarm to the childish. I am not. I will not be. Nothing belongs to me. Nothing will belong to me. For the childish, this notion produces fear. For the wise, this notion destroys fear. So we see here uh, the source, or at least one of the early sources for this idea that emptiness is frightening to the childish, to some people who don't really understand the Dharma fully. The teaching of emptiness is frightening. By him who speaks only for the benefit of beings, it was said that, presumably that's the Buddha, it was said that beings sprang from a sense of I accompanied by a sense of mind. There is an I and there is a mind. From the point of view of the highest purpose, which is a, a, a phrase that is used a lot in the early Indian Buddhist milieu, Paramartas, and it's a takeoff on the Hindu, or the, the scheme of life that was common in India at the time of the Buddha and afterwards for probably a thousand years or so which is, what is the highest purpose of life? There are many different aims or goals or purposes of life. And what is the highest purpose? And in traditional Indian uh, view of life, they divided life into four stages, 20-year periods each. And the first 20 years was maturing, becoming an adult. The next 20 years was uh, trying to learn a trade and earn a living and uh, raise a family. And then the, the third 20-year <coughs> period was 
um, to sort of enjoy the fruits of one's labors, having uh, achieved some semblance of uh, success in the world and with uh, uh, one's financial situation and one's family situation. And then the fourth 20-year period from 60 to 80 was to pursue the Dharma. And it was a custom that, and this, of course, given the male chauvinistic approach of society in India was was clearly focused on men, that men would become sannyasins and renounce the world, or or actually more, more commonly, this was within the Brahmanical tradition of India. And they would uh, focus all of their energy and time on studying the Brahmas, the, the uh, early uh, sacred texts of the religious tradition that today we call Hinduism. And uh, they would wear white robes and they would observe all these uh, various uh, rules that Brahmins are supposed to observe in, in as, as uh, closely as they possibly could. And so that was said to be the highest purpose of life, that fourth stage of life. <clears throat> um, there is an eye and there is mind from the point of view of the highest purpose. That is wrong. So the Buddha uses this idea of the highest purpose, but he changes it into the idea of enlightenment. For both claims are not established by the thorough knowledge of how reality truly is. And we saw this term before, yata bhutam, is how things really are. Bhutam is things, and yata is as they are. The bodily aggregates arise from making a sense of I, but from the point of view of reality, that is in fact unreal. If the seed of something is unreal, how then could its sprout be real? From seeing the non-existence of the aggregates, the sense of I is abandoned. So, um, if the seed of something is unreal, how then could its sprout be unreal? Um, by by seeing the unreality of the self, then everything else in the world is is pulled apart. The reality of everything else in this world is, is falls apart. All of the mind that we think exists in the world, by seeing the non-existence of the aggregates, the sense of I is abandoned. And from this abandonment, the assemblage of aggregates does not arise again in a new birth. The whole house is torn down as one of the images used or analogies used by the Buddha and other early Buddhists. When they achieved enlightenment, they would uh, write these gattas or short poems. And you know, one of the common phrases was, the house has been torn down, uh, the rafters, the uh, the support, the beams have all been uh, rent asunder, and the, the creator, there is no creator of this house. Um, just as the reflection of a face is seen by means of a mirror, even though from the point of view of reality, this reflection nevertheless is not anything real. So in the uh, common level of uh, our existence, we don't think that the, the reflection in a mirror is real so too the sense of I arises dependent upon the bodily aggregates, even though from the point of rea view of reality it is in fact nothing 
but like the reflection of a face. The reflection of a face in a mirror is produced by the confluence of the mirror and, the, and that which is reflected in it has no substance. And similarly, the projection of a being onto a face is of the same nature where uh, there is no person in, in the face or the body. There is no me there, but we project it into it. Just as without the means of a mirror one does not see the reflected image of the face, so too without the means of the aggregate, the sense of the aggregates, the sense of I is not seen. From hearing this and seeing the point, the noble Ananda himself gained the eye of the doctrine and repeatedly told it to monks and nuns. So a reference to how Ananda, the cousin of the Buddha, and his uh, attendant for the last... I don't know, 30 or so years of his life, how he achieved enlightenment was based on seeing the emptiness of the aggregates, the, the absence of I and the aggregates, and it became his main teaching. As long as one grasps the aggregates, there is indeed a sense of I. Where there is a sense of I, there again is action or karma. From that, there again is birth. So by, by seizing upon the idea that there's a person here where there's only aggregates, we start the whole chain of samsara. From that, there's again birth with these three pathways, the sense of I, action, and rebirth that cause one another this wheel of cyclic existence, the samsara mandala. He, using the term mandala, not in the Vajrayana sense, but in the a more common sense of a wheel um, that has no beginning, no middle, or end, turns like a whirling firebrand. And the whirling firebrand is one of the uh, favorite analogies or images or uh, phenomena uh, used by the Madhyamakans to demonstrate the, uh, the way that the illusion of... Uh, the existence of phenomena is created in the in the minds of confused beings by uh, the perception of um, things like the aggregates and so forth, and the ideas that uh, performers would have a, a, a firebrand, a, a, um, like a torch or something tied to a rope and they would twirl it around and it would appear like a circle of fire to the naked eye. It would look like a, an, an entire full ring of fire and you wouldn't like try to go by it or, or through it at any point because it seems like there's fire all around, whereas in reality it's just one point of fire traveling very quickly. And So the eye is deceived. In other words, our senses are deceived by what they perceive and our understanding is based on the false um, understanding of what our senses perceive, as in the case of projecting a person onto the aggregates. Because the sense of I does not result from itself, another, or both itself and another. So he's touching on, on uh, his usual scheme of presenting the absence of arising from the four extremes, which he goes into in detail in other sections of the text. 
in the past, present, or future, referring to the scheme of uh, the uh, how the three times are used to understand emptiness. The sense of I is destroyed upon realizing that it is empty of self-existence, and thereby karmic action is destroyed. Which is an interesting statement that uh, once the sense of I is dispersed, then karma has no ability to adhere to anything, and thereby rebirth is destroyed. There's no momentum that causes the rebirth of the continuum of the aggregates, having realized the absence of self in the aggregates. On 56, arising existence and non-existence, let's see. In this way, the arising and destruction of causes and effects are destroyed. The arising and destruction of causes and effects are destroyed. So, uh, this is an interesting statement. He's saying that, um, you know, this leads right from the stanzas on the page before, that by understanding uh, the mistakes that we make based on uh, in, uh, based on our limited perception, therefore, thereby, the uh, the activity, the efficacy of causes and effects is pulled apart, and as a, as a, as being real things, as causes and effects being real, as they're being causes and effects of real thing is destroyed, Chris. Yeah, I mean, this is a really subtle point that I think is uh, worthy of maybe dwelling on a bit because yeah. I don't think that he wants to say that that actions lose their efficacy, right? I think that's the really important thing for him to hold on to. But he's I, when he talks about cause and effect being destroyed, I, he's talking about kind of the, the conceptual projection that we presume that there is such a thing as a cause and effect and a whole kind of matrix in which those things fit together. That doesn't stand up under philosophical scrutiny. That being said, he, he does want to admit that, you know, things, things happen, that there's a path that can be tread and that karma uh, exists in at least the conventional sense. Yeah, it's an odd phrase in that in many other places, he goes to great lengths to say the cause and effect are not destroyed. So that it is that subtle difference that Chris is pointing out. And I think that's indicated by saying that the arising and destruction is of causes and effects is destroyed, which implies their existence as intrinsically real entities. And that arising and destruction are just... Um, descriptions of phenomena appearing without any discrete ontological essence. So too, from the point of, of view of reality, there is no existence or non-existence of the entire cosmos. The whole universe just disappeared. One who hears this doctrine that destroys all suffering, but does not investigate it, fears the fearless state and trembles due to ignorance. 
All this will not exist in Nirvana. This does not make you afraid. Here entities do not exist. Why does this make you afraid? <laughs> He's playing around with uh, with the uh, sort of surface level understanding of the Dharma versus the genuine level of understanding of the Dharma. And uh, the, the, uh, the common um, situation where many of us hear the teachings and don't act upon them in an urgent manner. Here entities do not exist. Why does this make you afraid? In a state of liberation or moksha, there is no self and no bodily aggregates. If a liberation of such a kind is dear to you, why is the removal of the self and the aggregates here not dear to you? And nirvana is, in, is not, in fact, the absence of an entity. How then could it have entityhood? So uh, he's trying to dis, to undermine the uh, the simplistic idea of liberation as being a liberation of me that I will achieve liberation from samsara, and uh, that nirvana is a real thing in a real place or a real entity. Nirvana is said to be the destruction of the notion of entities and non-entities, i.e. the absence of entities. So instead of, uh, so he, he's, he's uh, basically referring here to the earlier conception of Nirvana as being with and without outflows. So this, the the uh, uh, pr pr presentation of Nirvana that's common in the earlier uh, developments or schools of Buddhism, where nirvana is like a, a real entity listed on the chart of entities. In brief, the view of total non-existence, there is nothing, i.e. there is nothing, is that there are in fact no effects of action. This produces negative karmic merit. This view produces negative karmic merit and leads to negative rebirths. It is called a wrong view. In brief, the view of real existence, there is something, is that in fact the effects of action exist. This produces positive karmic situations or merit and leads to positive rebirths. It is called the right view. But when through knowledge one has stilled the notions of non-existence and existence, one passes beyond both demerit or, ne or negative merit and merit. The excellent ones say that this is liberation from both bad, negative, and positive rebirths. Seeing arising as occurring by means of a cause, one passes beyond the view of non-existence. So, uh, trying to uh, um, give the reader the understanding of emptiness as being the middle, not the extremes of existence or non-existence. Arising, occurring by means of a cause, one passes beyond the view of non-existence, seeing cessation as occurring by means of a cause. One does not assert the view of existence. So one doesn't fall to the sides of uh, 
Well, presuming that there are things, real existence, or denying that they're denying everything. A cause born before its effect or simultaneously with its effect is not a real cause. In fact, any notion of production cannot be conceived from either a conventional point of view or the point of view of reality. When this is that arises is like when there is long, there is short. So he takes this famous phrase from the Buddha's presentation of dependent origination. When this is, that arises. It says, it's just like the comparison of uh, two lengths, long and short, that only exist in comparison to each other in a relative sphere. And that's the same type of relationship between the members of the scheme of dependent arising. In fact, any notion of production cannot be conceived from either conventional point of view or the point of view of reality. I'm sorry, I said that already. Let's see. Due to the production of this that is produced is like when there is a flame, there is light. Since there is short, there is long, they do not exist by self-existence. These are short and long or purely relative terms dependent on a relationship with another non-intrinsically existent phenomena. So too, if there is no flame, there can be no light. That is, arising is dependent and not self-existent. Seeing that cause and effect arise thus, one does not assert the doctrine of non-existence, but asserts that the nature of the conventional cosmos is born from conceptual projection, propancha, this very uh, important term, conceptual projection. The, the, the universe is born from concept, from conceptuality. Cessation, as it is, also results from conceptual projection. And thus one does not assert the doctrine of existence in any way, not taking a stand in either point of view one is thereby liberated. This idea of not uh, settling into either of the extremes of existence or non-existence, but um, being able to remain in the middle. A form that is seen from a distance is seen clearly by those who are nearby. If a mirage were really water, why is water not seen by those who are near the mirage? So too the cosmos is seen as real by those who are far away f from it, but it is not seen as real by those who draw near to reality by examining what is real. For them the, com the cosmos, like a mirage, is free of objective, real, i.e. real signs. So I think he's uh, using the cosmos as an analogy for just real things in general and saying that basically most people are very far away from looking at things correctly and that those who do look at phenomena carefully see that they don't exist in the way we conceptualize them. Just as a mirage looks like water but has no water, nor is something real, so too the bodily aggregates look like a self from a distance, but in fact they're not a self nor anything real looked at up close. You know, so looked at up close, the body when taken apart looks nothing like a person. 
like me or you. And uh, if, if believing there is water in a mirage, one goes near and still thinks there's no water here, one is foolish, for one does not know the nature of a mirage. I think the word no there must be a mistake. But so too, when someone takes this mirage-like world either to be existent or to be non-existent, that someone is under a delusion. You know, so it's possible that the no is correct, and he's saying, well, that's an extreme, saying there is no water here. But when there is delusion, one is not liberated. A follower of the doctrine of non-existence goes to negative rebirths. A follower of the doctrine of existence goes to higher rebirth. What who knows how things really are through full knowledge takes no stand on these two and attains liberation from rebirth. Some who fully know how things really are are unwilling to accept the doctrines of real existence and total non-existence by bewilderment you or they believe that they seize nothing exists. They fixate on nihilism. Why do they not, in your opinion, seize the claim of real existence? It's, it's uh, just another extreme. It's just like, just like uh, seizing upon non-existence. Objection. If by refuting the doctrine of real existence, the doctrine of non-existence is destroyed, since without existence first there cannot be non-existence, then why by refuting the doctrine of total existence is not the doctrine of real existence also destroyed? So he's saying basically, um, having undermined or refuted either extreme, thereby refutes the other extreme because the two extremes are dependent upon each other. By taking refuge in enlightenment, which is the translation of Bodhi, there is no thesis to be thought or developed having no stake in the doctrine of non-existence. How can they be thought to be its supporters? As the ordinary people along with the Samkhyas, the Vaisheshikas, Jains, and Buddhist Pudgalavadans who maintain the doctrine of a person and aggregates whether they proclaim to the world what passes beyond real existence and total non-existence, beyond isness and is-notness. Thereby know that our doctrine that passes beyond the doctrines of real existence and total non-existence is called the ambrosia of the profound teaching of the Buddhas, the amrita, translated as ambrosia, the deathless potion of the profound teaching of the Buddhas. How can this cosmos be real when it does not vanish while disintegrating? Nor does it come into existence, nor does it endure even for an instant. And this is beyond, thus is beyond the threefold time of past, present, and future. From the point of view of reality, both the cosmos and nirvana do not exist in either the future, the past, or the present. How can there really be any difference between them? Okay, let's see. Uh, one more section, and then we'll skip a few. Momentariness, momentariness, one of the basic ideas of the early tradition. Since there is no enduring, there is no arising or ceasing from the point of view of reality. 
Thus, how can there really be something being born, enduring, and ceasing? So, the early, earlier traditions, Vaibhashikas, Satrantikas, have this view that dharmas come into existence in it for an instant, and then immediately disintegrate, and then produce the, either the next moment of their own continuum, or if they encounter a situation, let's say, or an obstruction, uh, they encounter the, the next moment of some very different situation. But but the problem with that is that they believe that there is something that comes into existence and endures for a split moment and disappears. But he's saying, how can there really be something being born, enduring, and ceasing? If there's always change, how could entities really be other than momentary? If there's no change, how could they, there in fact be alteration at all, or otherness at all? How could there be um, phenomena other that are other? How can they turn into something other? A thing is momentary because it disintegrates either totally or partially, since no difference in the two cases is perceived. Both are not established by argument. If something were momentary in every aspect, in every respect, how could it become old? I have that same question. <laughs> um, if something is not momentary, and because of its state of being constant. Again, how could it become old? Because there is an end of a moment, there must also be imagined a moment's beginning and middle us. Because of the three-part nature of a moment, the cosmos cannot have the duration of a moment. So this idea of momentariness doesn't really hold water, at least in the Garjana's glass. In addition, the beginning, middle, and end must each also be considered like a moment as having those three parts, a beginning, middle, and end, the beginning of a beginning, the middle of a beginning, and the end of the beginning. Thus the beginning, middle, and end do not produce from themselves or others. Because of this multiplicity of parts, there is in fact, there is, sorry, there is nothing that is a simple unity. In addition, without the idea of one, there is no multiplicity. Interesting how he... He does this equivalence where he relates uh, the um, the uh, lack of efficacy of, or the lack of rationality of temporal coherence with the lack of rationality of uh, the true existence of partlessness, time and space. He correlates in various places. Let's see, skipping. Uh, you know, it's it's interesting because what one thing we really don't see in Nagarjuna is like a grand theory of emptiness. And you know, we, you look at the Malabhyamaka Karakas, and it's like it's all of these different topics rather than you know I'm laying out my thesis and here it is and. And and that's that's simply because uh, emptiness like couldn't have such a thesis because his whole point is that he doesn't have a thesis that, that emptiness he has nothing to support um, and instead takes takes apart anything else that you could possibly hope to be real. Um, 
And so, so what you see is not a, a grand thesis, but like kind of like a like a single argument that he uses over and over again, over and over uh, again. Yeah, to, sort to of destroy. snippets. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. It's it's a little bit frustrating. It's a little bit disconcerting when you read his text because there's no like introduction of a, of a thesis and then development of it and then conclusion of it. It's just like this endless, choppy um, reduction of various topics to absurdity which is why the 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 sections that are omitted here where he actually goes through the progressive understanding of selflessness of a person and phenomena are actually really interesting because he does have like a sequence and a theme you know and and a, a plot so to speak <laughs> uh let's see properly understanding the doctrine a couple of pages forward on 62 Oh no, let's let's skip that as well. Let's see. Now let's do back on sixty one on the limits of the cosmos. This is particularly apt today because you know, with all the the new photographs of the universe from the, the web uh space telescope we have really much greater insight into the re into the ultimate reality of the universe and its uh, creation and its formation and activities and and uh, structures as real things very real things that are very colorful colorful and beautiful great photos on the limits of the cosmos knowing by every means possible how could the all knower assert that this cosmos has a limit or is without a limit so limit is like an end they, they use this term limit uh this term that um for some reason is translated as as limit but it means without an end or an extreme or a, a finality um that the cosmos has a limit or is without a limit or has both or neither or alternate translation this cosmos has a limit or is without a limit or is one or many throwing in the shifting to another scheme objection innumerable buddhas have gone will come or appear here at this moment innumerable sentient beings have come and gone the notion of a limit is said by the buddhas to be born from the three times the past present and future there is no cause for the enlargement of the cosmos <laughs> the cosmos can't get larger and then the, the the translator puts in parentheses that is there are no new beings being added to the cosmos as time passes which is an interesting concept that uh, there's a set number of beings and uh, beings transmigrate into various realms but the total number remains the same they're not being there's no new ones being created uh, you might argue that the number is reducing slightly as people become enlightened but he doesn't seem to to take that into consideration the passing away of beings occurs in the three times uh, and when all sentient beings are liberated the cosmos will pass away it's an interesting idea that's presented here and there in the texts 
of this idea that may all beings attain omniscience or liberation, and then the universe disappears. It's a long time away. Uh, how then could the prior and future ends of the cosmos not be explained by the all-knowing one? Why didn't the Buddha talk about, you know, he was asked about the, the limit of the cosmos, and he, he was so rude, he just didn't say anything. He just sat there like a bump on a log, stared at the guy. Reply, this profound doctrine remains a secret. From ordinary people, the world is like an illusion. Interesting that he says, like an illusion. You can't say it is an illusion, because then you're like presenting it as being something. But it has an illusion-like quality. That is the ambrosia. <laughs> the, God, the drink of the gods of the Buddhas just as the birth and death of an elephant created by magic are observed even though in reality there is neither a birth and death so too the beginning and end of the illusory cosmos are observed even though from the ultimate point of view there is neither a beginning nor an end this is a reference to um, the idea of, the, of kalpas, the, the cosmological scheme of the Buddhist tr tradition of there being different aeons, and aeons come to an end, and the universe is destroyed, and uh, there's various schemes for this, destroyed by earth, and destroyed by water, and destroyed by fire, and destroyed by air, and then the universe is reborn again, comes back. So somebody must be there and have seen that. <laughs> Sort of, I guess. I don't know. Maybe a replicant. Oh, let's see. Just as an elephant created by magic does not come from anywhere, no, nor goes anywhere, nor does it stay anywhere as a real entity since it is due to a bewilderment of awareness, so too this cosmos created by magic does not come from anywhere, nor go anywhere, nor does it stay anywhere as a real entity since it is due to a bewilderment of awareness. Thus, what is this cosmos really that transcends the threefold span of time and that cannot be said to exist or not exist other than by conventional usage? For this reason alone, the Buddha left unanswered the four propositions. The cosmos has a limit, has none, both or neither. And that was uh, how the questioner questioned him, saying, does, asked the Buddha, does the cosmos have a limit? or not, or both, or neither. And let's see, skipping to the last section of this text on page 64, emptiness is not arising. According to the great vehicle, emptiness is not arising. For other Buddhists, emptiness is destruction. Emptiness is the absence of entities. But for the Mahayana, emptiness is... Um, the non-coming into existence of anything. But destruction and the absence of arising can in fact be considered one. Emptiness and the great nature of the Buddhas are viewed thus with reason. To the wise then, how could the great vehicle and other vehicles not be equal, ultimately? Um, it is not easy to penetrate what the Buddhas have taught with their special intention. This reference to the intention that a Buddha has when they teach. 
and thereby teaching different things on different situations is a very important and, and common theme in the Mahayana. Thus, protect yourself through impartiality between the one or three Buddhist vehicles of liberation, the three being Shravaka, Pratyeka Buddha, and Bodhisattva. Just as a grammarian first teaches the alphabet to students, so the Buddha first taught the doctrine in a way accessible to those to be trained. To some, the Buddha taught the doctrine to end clinging to demetorious deeds. To some, he taught it for the sake of achieving merit. To some, he taught the doctrine based on duality. To some, he taught doctrines not based on duality, a doctrine that is profound and terrifying to those who are afraid. This is this famous section where Nagarjuna says that emptiness is terrifying to those who do not understand it and who are afraid of their own non-existence. To some, which is basically all of us, but anyway, he taught, to some he taught the inner core of emptiness and compassion, the means to achieve bodhi or enlightenment, to achieve bodhi enlightenment. So, skipping to our next text, this the, uh, what's called the 70 verses on emptiness. They really needed like an, a publicist or an editor, you know, to come up with better names for these texts, the 60 verses, the 70 verses. Not very good marketing appeal. Okay, so Chandra Kirti, famous commentator on uh, Nagarjuna and his other commentators, considered this text, along with the text overturning the objections, to be an appendix to Nagarjuna's fundamental views or Mulabhandyamakukarikas. It is written in the same meter as overturning the objections, and it too has a prose commentary. It is also more organized than the 60 verses on argument. Another of his six texts, its theme is to defend the claim that emptiness does not entail ontological nihilism, nihilism, something like that. The charge was that phenomena are supported by nothing but other unsupported phenomena. Thus, ultimately, there is no substance, no ground, no nothing. Rather, Nagarjuna argued empty entities are not real or self-existent, but neither are they totally non-existent. Rather, they are dependent on other, on other empty things, just like dreams and mirages and illusions. None of the text is available in Sanskrit, so everything, the summary given here comes from uh, translations from the Tibetan by these other translators. I don't see any difference between these two views, he's saying. Which two views? The charges that phenomena are supported by nothing but other unsupported phenomena. And then he says, rather, Nagarjuna argued empty entities are not real, but neither they totally non-existence, rather they dependent on other empty things. So they're dependent on other empty things versus they're supported by other unsupported phenomena. What's the difference? Yeah, he didn't say that very well. You know, he, he yeah. by the first one he means nihilism. Yeah. But he didn't really explain it. 
he basically both descriptions are a good way of describing Nagarjuna's middle way. Right. <laughs> That's a good point. Thank you, Chris. The conventionally real is not ultimately real. I think the term oh. is one trick pony. Isn't that what they call it? You know, <laughs> he has one one thing that he wants to sell and that's it. Yeah. It's not really an it, but okay, yeah. Following worldly conventions, um, the Buddhas speak of arising, duration, and cessation, beings, non-being, inferior, middling, superior. But from the point of view of reality, these do not exist. But designations are insignificant since what is designated, for example, a self, and non-self and self and non-self do not exist. All things that can be designated by words, such as nirvana, are empty of self-existence. The self-existence of all things is not found in their causes and conditions, either separately or collectively. Thus, all things are empty of self-existence. Something real does not arise since it already exists. <laughs> Something unreal does not arise because it does not exist. There can be nothing that is a being and non-being because nothing can simultaneously both be and not be. Because nothing arises, nothing endures. Nothing ceases. What has already been born cannot be born again, nor can what is not yet be born be born. What is in the process of being born cannot be born because it is simultaneously already born and not, not yet born. And as just stated, these individually are incapable of being born, and so they cannot be born simultaneously either. A cause is a cause only when there is an effect. When there is no effect, what is called a cause is really a non-cause. It is a contradiction to claim that a cause and its effect neither exist nor does not exist at the same time. Thus, a cause is not possible in the past, present, and future. <laughs> in the three times. Uh, what arises dependently is empty. Without one, there cannot be many. That's pretty simple. Without many, one is not possible. Why is that? Without many, one is not possible. They exist in relation to each other. Thus they are dependent on each other, and so are not real. And being dependently arisen, they have no essential characteristic or mark, since only what is real can have a characteristic or a mark. Twelve steps of the alcoholics, no, of the dependent arising of rebirth, which has suffering as its effect, are not born since they do not occur in a single mental event of awareness or in any mental events. They do not occur in a single mental event of awareness. There is no permanent or impermanent self or non-self and so forth. The four errors associated with these pairs do not exist. <clears throat> errors don't exist either. Without these errors, the root ignorance based on them is not possible. And so the dispositions based on the root ignorance do not arise. He's going through the 
the uh, different members of the 12 Nidanas, and so on for the remaining 10 steps of the dependent arising of rebirth, thus ending root ignorance ends rebirth. Current root ignorance does not occur without earlier dispositions, and without it, more dispositions do not arise. Thus, they are the cause of one another, and so neither can be established as having self-existence, something that cannot be established by its own self-existence as real, cannot be the cause of something else, either real or unreal. Thus, the conditions that are without self-existence cannot produce the other conditions. A father is not a son. How can a father not be a son? Father has to have been a son, right? I disagree with Nagarjuna here. I think a father can be a son. I think he's really just talking about one specific father-son relationship. Oh, okay. okay they, the two okay. have to be different because they depend on each other. Okay, but he should be clear. That was poorly written. Yes. <laughs> or maybe poorly translated. Right. A father of a son is not that son, and a son of a father is not that father, but neither can the one can be the one without the other. There is not one without the other, nor do they exist simultaneously. So too with the twelve steps of dependent arising, just the happiness or suffering that arises from an object in a dream does not have any realities as its object. So too would arise dependently and what is dependent upon both do not exist. Okay, let's skip here. Uh, let's see. This is a little more coherent though, right? This style. And it's not quite as choppy as some of the other stuff. Um, how about the next? Yeah, continuing on on 67. Q&A's. That's sort of interesting. So objection. So... The Garshan is raising a, an objection to his otherwise clear and unobjectionable presentation so far. He says, well, if you think that entities do not exist by their own self-existence, then low, middling, and superior, along with the entire manifest world, are not established. It cannot be established even through a cause. So everything just sort of dissolves. The reply is, well, if self-existence were established, then entities that arise dependently would not occur, since what is real cannot lose its self-existence. Um, if self-existence would establish, then entities that arise dependently would not occur, since what is real cannot lose its self-existence. So those entities that are self-existence would not arise by dependent arising. If entities were unconditioned, they would not lack self-existence. And real entities do not become absent. If entities were unconditioned, they would not lack self-existence. They would, they would be self-existent as unconditioned, presumably. And real entities um, do not suddenly become absent. 
little bit of a non sequitur maybe. What does not exist does not have self-existence or other existence, nor does it become an absent entity. So all of these things of uh, the unconditioned and real entities and so forth, um, since the, none of them have, have real existence, they cannot become absent. Thus the ideas of self-existence, other existence, and absence of entity are all errors. But wait a minute, if entities are empty of self-existence, then arising and cessation can't occur. What is empty of self-existence does not arise or cease. So where does arising and cessation come from? Well, an entity and its absence do not occur simultaneously, but there is no entity without an absent entity. <laughs> if an entity could not become an absent entity, it would be eternal. Similarly, without an entity, the absence of an entity would be eternal. <laughs> this little confusing. Without an entity, there can be no absence of an entity. Without an entity, there can be no absence of an entity. You can't have an absence of an entity if there were not an entity. You would be logically ridiculous. An entity does not arise from itself or from something else. Thus, an entity is not real. And there are no real entities. There are no real non-entities for that matter, too. If there is being, entities would exist eternally. If there is non-being, then there necessarily is annihilation, real annihilation. If entities had being, these two views, beingness and non-beingness, arise. Therefore, we should not accept the reality of entities. Wait a minute. Because there is the series of births and annihilations in the phenomenal world, these two views do not arise. Well, let me tell you, since each member in the series is not established, the series itself is not established. And if each member has self-existence, each member would be eternal and separate. And this would end the continuity of the series. So if you say that they exist, then there's no series of dependent arising. And if, they, if you say they don't exist, then there's no series. How about Nirvana? Nirvana. Wait a minute. The Buddhist teaching on, of the way to enlightenment involved arising and cessation, right? Well, arising and cessation are empty of self-existence and so do not actually exist. Arising involves existence and ceasing involves non-existence. Thus, they mutually exclude each other. To perceive either arising or cessation as real is an error. I don't know about that one. If there is no arising and cessation, through the cessation of what is nirvana produced? If there is no cessation, they answer their question. But reply, liberation is seeing that by the nature of things, nothing arises or ceases. There is nothing real to arise or cease, since everything is empty of self-existence. If nirvana resulted from cessation, there must be annihilation of something real. If nirvana resulted from not ceasing, 
there would be permanence of something real. But nirvana is neither a real entity nor the absence of a real entity. Thus, it is without real arising or cessation. If cessation abided, it would be something other than an entity which, which, which are impermanent, than an entity which is impermanent, but it does not exist without a real entity or with the absence of a real entity. It feels like mumbo-jumbo, doesn't it? Sort of like, just like word play, just like playing with language. About the non-reality of things on 69, a defining characteristic cannot exist without what it characterizes, i.e. fire, and it's defining characteristic of heat. And what is characterized cannot exist without the characteristic. Fire can't exist without it. See, thus they are both conditioned, and hence neither is real, independent. Thus neither can be established itself or the other, since what is not real cannot establish anything. Cause and effect feeling in the person who feels, seeing in the person who sees, and so forth, are all to be explained in this same way. The three time periods are not self-existent and hence not real. The periods are not fixed and so cannot be classified. They exist only in relation to each other. They change. They do not exist apart. Sorry. They do not exist from their own being from their own side, and entities do not exist, so we can't establish time periods. They are merely discriminations made by the mind, vikalpa. These are interesting to see some, to see some things that are recognizable, certain phrases that have come down to us 2,000 years later. Since the three characteristics of all compound, compound? compound things um, arising and during and ceasing are not real. There is nothing real that is ever conditioned, that is either conditioned or unconditioned. What is not yet destroyed does not cease, nor does what is already destroyed cease, because there's no real things to be ceased or destroyed. What is already enduring does not start to endure, nor does it, nor does what is not enduring endure. Birth does not occur for what is already born, nor for the unborn. If it's already born, why would it be born? And if it's unborn, how can it possibly be born? What is conditioned and what is not conditioned are not many or one. They're not real or unreal or compo compo composite of these. And these categories cover all possibilities. The pervasion. Oh, let's see. Wouldn't it be fun to introduce these notions of born and unborn to the uh, political morass going on about <laughs> subject of uh, birth and uh, forced birth? <laughs> That'd be great. You file a lawsuit against the, the ban uh, on abortions, just like pulling it apart using Nagarjuna's logic, and there, thereby you'd have to throw out the uh, Supreme Court ruling. <laughs> it's not a funny matter, though, unfortunately. No, no, not funny, but can you imagine the minds that would be blown apart? Yeah. I don't think they'd be blown apart. I think they would... They, they would ignore it. I totally. think they would listen to you for about three seconds, and then... 
you know, dig in their heels. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> Start up with yes. their rhetoric. Yeah, unfortunately true, but it's sort of funny to see this and think of that at the same time. So let's see, if the, let's conclude with these uh, two sections uh, starting on 72. No entities are real. Independent arising is empty. The Buddha taught that everything is impermanent, but from the highest point of view, nothing is either permanent or impermanent. Only if they were real entities could there be something that's either permanent or impermanent. But there are no real things anywhere. The entities desire, hatred, and error, the three roots of unskillful action, arise dependently upon mistaken conceptions about what is pleasant, unpleasant, and real. Thus, Desire, hatred, and error do not exist through self-existence. Since desire, hatred, and error may exist in relation to the same thing, these passions are created only by our mental discrimination and thus do not really exist. What is imagined is a mental creation and thus does not exist. Mental discriminations are a matter of what is imagined, and so mental discriminations and what is imagined arise from conditions. Thus they too are empty of self-existence. Mental discriminations are a matter of what is imagined, and so mental discriminations and what is imagined arise from conditions. Thus they are empty. By seeing things as they really are, we see that root ignorance, which arises from the four perverted views, does not really exist. Thus the dispositions that are dependent upon the root existence, some scars, cannot arise. Thus the remaining ten steps of the dependent arising and rebirth also cannot arise. An entity that is dependent upon another entity for its arising only arises dependent upon that other entity, since that other entity is not real. Neither is what arises dependent upon it. The idea of self-existent entities in their absence where the compounded and the non-compounded are all stilled and extinguished. The, uh, the translation of Shanta which is, I'm sure you all have heard the word Shanti, Om Shanti, <laughs> is a pacified. Here translated as stilled, distilled, like distilled water. But uh, all stilled as if, uh, as in like uh, all movement is pacified. Anyway, um, Thus the root ignorance of seeing entities as real or self-existence does not arise, and therefore neither do the other eleven steps. The dispositions are thus like the castle of the Gandharvas, an illusion, a mirage, a net of hair, a bubble, foam, a phantasm, a dream, or a circle of light produced by spinning a torch fast. I think that should be quickly. but um, So these are a set of traditional analogies for emptiness. and I'm familiar with a set of eight, and uh, apparently there's also a set of ten. And here, interestingly, we have nine. <laughs> uh, but the castle of the Gandharvas is, is uh, supposed to be something that's uh, built in midair, 
by beings that live on the scents of flowers and uh, plants and so forth. And so their castles are an analogy for something that's not really existent or there, an illusion, a mirage, a net of hair, a hairnet. What is that? What is a hairnet? Is that like a dream catcher or something? I don't know. What's a hairnet? That's an odd one. A hair, I, I guess a hairnet doesn't really catch anything, and it's and maybe it's that it would disintegrate. A net of something so fine as hair would just fall apart. Yeah, something like that. That it's not not very effective. A bubble, or foam, a phantasm. What's a phantasm? A dream, or the circling firebrand. Phantasm. Any examples of phantasms? <gasps> a ghost-like creature. It's a phantasm. Okay. Reality is it truly is empty of self-existence. Presumably the end of the 70 verses, which contains, by the way, 73 verses. <laughs> uh, but it's a bigger 70. Yeah, that's right. 70 well, sounds better, right? Interesting. Phantasm, in addition to being illusory mental images and all that, in the third definition, it says in Platonic philosophy, objective reality as perceived and distorted by the five senses. Yeah. Interesting. Conventional reality is a phantasm in the world of Plato, in the world of, compared to the pure forms of Plato, right? But that seems kind of similar and related to the Buddhist view of, you know, the distortion yeah. of what we see. Kind of, kind of, sort of. Yeah. We just don't. We just don't have the pure form part. <laughs> well, they don't mention pure form here. They just say objective reality, as perceived and distorted by the five senses, which is kind of the way we talk about us yeah. perceiving and not understanding it right. Exactly. No entities at all exist by self-existence, nor are there any real absence of entities. Entities and absent entities arise from causes and conditions and thus are empty. I like that absent entities arise from causes. That's a good one. Since all entities are empty of self-existence, the Buddha taught the dependent arising of all entities. The ultimate truth consists of this teaching of emptiness. The Buddha, while holding to worldly conventions, conceived the world properly. Conceived. What, a, what an odd word to use for a Buddha. Interesting. The Buddha, while holding to worldly conventions, conceived the world properly. Presumably, in the in the realm of uh, the conventional, he had conceptions. He mimicked the world's conceptuality. Worldly doctrines are not abolished, but from the point of view of reality, as it really is, the Buddha never taught any dharma. This famous idea that comes up uh, in a more expanded version of nobody ever taught any dharma to anybody. Nobody ever taught any teaching to anyone, anywhere, anytime. Uh, let's see. 
But the what's with all these books that I have to buy? I know. This <laughs> doesn't make sense. But the ignorant do not understand what the Buddha said and are afraid of his spotless speech. Vimala Vachana, speech free of any indication of self-existent entities, is spotless. The worldly principle this arises dependent. Uh, sorry, this arises dependent upon that is not denied, but what arises dependently lacks self-existence. That is perfectly evident. One having faith who seeks reality and who does not cling to the teaching of any doctrine and who considers this principle by argument, yukti, overcomes the ideas of entities and non-entities and becomes tranquil or still or peaceful, pacified, shanti. One no longer projects notions of distinct self-existent realities onto reality by seeing the conditionality of all of this world all the mental discriminations that constitute the net of the false views cease and with this abandonment of desire hatred and error one proceeds to nirvana where <laughs> yeah where 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 so let's see, we have one more class. Next week we do the 60 verses and this text, Vidalia Prakarana, pulverizing the categories. Get a pulverizer. <laughs> Pile driver. Or mortar and mortar and pestle. Any comments? There's very little reading for next week in those texts, right? That's not fair. Um, That's okay. I think we'll survive. I think we should look at one of his, his essays. We skipped a whole bunch of his essays. But I'll, I'll email about that. So... Any final comments? Wait, it's rare I, that I, we end early. Right. Yes. When you were at, at the very bottom of the 72, when you were noting that he says entities and absent entities arise, and that that's kind of weird, would you say that's probably a, a translation issue as opposed to a... a error? I think, or, yeah. I think he's talking to the Nyayas. The Nyayakas, um, who were very thoroughgoing realists to the extent that they they believed that absences existed, you know? So like when the teacher's in front of the class saying, Bueller, Bueller, he's actually perceiving the absence of Ferris Bueller as a as a real thing. So, you know, in the in the Nyaya Vaisheshika view. Um, absences are things that are produced. So he's he's talking about how, well, if absences are produced, then they can't really exist. If entities are produced, then they can't really exist. He finds both to be equally absurd. Similar to space as being a real thing. Yeah. Ferris Bueller's Day Off. 
What did he end up doing on his day off anyway? Kind of a boring movie. I mean, if you really like look at the plot, you know, they go to like a mall. Yes. The best part, they go to a, they go to an art museum and that's the best scene in the movie. Totally. Yeah. And he's in a parade. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good scene too. I guess. Kevin, what were you saying? My son took me to see it actually. And I thought it was a blast. It was like oh. every student's dream, you know, yeah, every, skipping school. Every student's wet dream. That's what. It was. What about um? Don't they like borrow one of the kids' dad's fancy sports car or something and like? Yeah, yeah. They, they, they pull fast ones on all the adults and the teachers, and they feel so involved and and. and that gives them all the joy. But don't they don't they almost total the car or something? They they, they, they put do. a lot of miles on the car, so they they try to undo the miles by driving the car in reverse, <laughs> and uh, you know misadventure uh, ensues. But then they kick the the brick out from when the car's in reverse, and it shoots out the back of the garage and crashes and. Yeah. <laughs> right, it's on like a hill or something, right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. They, it's yeah, like in a modern house in the woods, and it shoots out the back. It was through like a glass window, right? It's it's a yeah. pretty spectacular image. That's great. That was the best part of the movie, I thought. Yeah, <laughs> oh, it's a great movie. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, shall we dedicate? By this merit may all obtain omniscience, may it defeat the enemy wrongdoing. From the stormy waves of birth, old age, sickness, and death, from the ocean of samsara, may I free all beings. By the confidence of the golden sun of the great east, may the lotus garden of the regions wisdom bloom. May the dark ignorance of sentient beings be dispelled. May all beings enjoy profound, brilliant glory. So, so uh, last, last one, last comment is um, uh, you know it's a little, little bit difficult going through these texts so quickly and so just sort of flitting through them. Uh, but, but it's a trade-off. Like uh, um, on the one hand, you get a flavor for all of his main six texts by doing it this way. Whereas if we had focused only on one text, we would forever be wondering, well, what was in that other text? And what, you know, what was in the Mulubhidyamaka Karikas if we had done the Rot Navali? So, uh, but, you know, but then the trade-off is not going through any one of them in detail. So uh, hopefully uh, someday you guys will read through the Mulubhidyamaka Karikas or we'll read a commentary on it and you'll go through the uh, Rot Navali. The precious garland. Anyway, thank you very much. Nice to see you. I think you guys. this is a better approach, Derek. This is a better, that's what I thought too. Yeah, yeah just do a yeah. survey and, of them. And it's also, so, you know, it, it, it's so wonderfully accessible compared to some of the other reading suites. So, <laughs> like um, Luminous, what was it? Luminous Heart. That was, that was a slog, huh? Uh, right. So what, so, what's so, next? Did we decide what's next? 
Yes, we're doing the um Aaron's Bueller on his on his day off. <laughs> the the basics of uh, Abby Dharma, the uh, very, very detailed uh, uh, presentation of reality, of conventional reality, of what things are, what's a thing, and how do things function? What are the different types of things? How do we define them? Getting very clear about definitions and... Uh, so that we know what we're talking about when we're talking about them. Traditionally, so we know what we're talking about when we're blowing them up. Yeah, when, when we're blowing them up or dismissing them as being empty. So in the same way as you went to Calais, that was, one would say Calais. I remember the other one, finally, it was Genoa. It's oh, in, really? Near Genoa. Yeah. So that was, it was like the town that had the bars open later at night than where I lived. And so that's where people would drive. They would drive to Genoa and you'd be like, Genoa, isn't that Genoa? You know, nope, here it's Genoa. <laughs> what school was that near? Uh, that was uh, Cornell, yeah, or uh, Ithaca. Cornell, cool, neat. The gorge. The gorges. Yeah, yeah, the famous bridge. Oh, yeah. Anyway, thanks. Yeah, anyway, thanks. Stay cool. Hopefully tomorrow will be cooler. Be well. See you next week for the last class and bring refreshments, even though they're not real. All right. Bye, Derek. Bye. Yes. Thank you.